0: Ruff, and this is Conversational Commerce, the podcast where we break down the biggest industry news and trends by talking shop with the Retail Dive team, thought leaders, and executives. It's the start of a new year, and in celebration, we're bringing you a special bonus episode about the big year ahead, thanks to eight big predictions I've crowdsourced from Doug Stevens. He's the founder and CEO of Retail Profit, and he's a self-described retail futurist. That means he spends a lot of time thinking about where the industry is heading. So where is it going this year? In his eyes, brands and retailers will spend more time than ever talking about manufactured scarcity, sustainability, and the beginning of the end for Amazon. You'll hear what exactly that means for the e-commerce giant and a whole lot more in our interview. All right, let's dive in. Hey, Doug, long time no talk.
1: Yeah, good to be back.
0: So for our listeners who are just tuning in, if you haven't listened to the latest episode of Conversational Commerce, stop what you're doing, go back, listen to that. Doug and I just spoke. We revisited his predictions from last year and caught up on what 2018 had in store for retailers. Now we're going to shift and focus in on the new year and go on even a little bit further than that. So Doug, you've got eight predictions here that kind of tee off the trends we're going to see in 2019 and how they might bleed into a couple of years down the road from that. So let's just dive right in. First one you're talking about is manufactured scarcity. So mm-hmm. walk me through that prediction there.
1: You know, this, this won't come as a shock. To people, But I mean, the fact of the matter is, um, 30 years ago, the entire retail economy was based on the principle of scarcity. Uh, flash forward 30 years, uh, we all carry supercomputers in the palm of our hand, we have access to virtually anything on earth. And so in that world, uh, increasingly, retailers are finding it difficult to give consumers a sense of urgency. Retailers and brands now, in a very deliberate way, are manufacturing a sense of scarcity, and we're seeing this in the fashion market in particular with drops. You know, whether it's Nike or LVMH and Supreme coming together for a limited drop of product, or Bape, uh, a Bape having a concert with Kid Cudi and then coming out with a limited release of t-shirts based on that concert. Everybody is out there trying to give consumers a sense of fear of missing out. And uh, I think we're not only going to see that continue in fashion, but I think we're going to start to see it bleed over into other product categories, which could include things like electronics, furniture, cars, who knows. Um, but, yeah, so I'm but hearing it, is
0: capitalizing on FOMO.
1: Exactly. Yeah, that's that's exactly it. Promo doesn't work anymore. I mean, just just reducing the price of something and trying to create urgency just doesn't cut it anymore. So if it's not promo, it's got to be FOMO.
0: So moving on, your second prediction is surveillance is the new price of service. Walk us through that.
1: Yeah, doesn't that sound Orwellian?
0: It really does. It sounds
1: <laughs> awful, doesn't it? Um, I, guess, I guess my thinking on this is that we as shoppers today, we want, we want personalization, we want customization, we want editing and curation based on us, based on our needs. But the other reality is that in order to have that, it requires a a greater level of intimate knowledge uh, on the part of a brand or a retailer about who we are. And so I believe that retailers, and, and we're already starting to see movement in this direction, this notion of offline analytics, understanding who is coming into my stores or onto my websites, really trying to develop a profile of not just who that segment or that market is, but who is that individual? What are their needs and preferences? And how can we deliver exactly what they want when they want it? Now, I think what we're going to see as part and parcel of that is we're going to see a lot of very awkward and uh, perhaps even uh, illegal (laughs) activity going on as retailers sort of fumble through this new world. But The way I look at it is this, you know, if we go back 100 years, when you walked into the butcher shop in a small town, the butcher probably knew your name, he knew your kids' names, he knew where you lived, he was willing to drop off your order that night, and he knew exactly what you wanted because he knew what you ordered all the time. And so there was this intense level of understanding of the consumer. We only went away from that through, say, the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, and you could argue the early 2000s. We departed from that. Cons- customers became markets and segments. Well, now we're back to a place where we don't have to be anonymous anymore. Companies can understand who we are as individuals, and it feels really weird and awkward, and partly because a lot of that is digital. And we don't know who to trust right now, you know? But I think we're going to sort through it.
0: Yeah, and absolutely. I think the example is an interesting one, right? Because I think, you know, people do want that kind of level of service and it's just not scalable like it used to be, perhaps, with no. these massive companies. Although the, the the point that I would make is that it's a little different if your butcher knows everything about you because then you in turn probably know everything about them and their kids and their life and their background. And, you know, how much can you know about Alexa aside from the fact that she's a, a robot creator? created by Amazon. So I, I do wonder, you know, where we're going to see that trust and how it's going to come through and if that is going to segment and divide some consumers, perhaps cities versus rural areas or what have you, who will be on board and who won't.
1: Yeah, and, and I agree with you. And, and I think that, um, you know, the, the, the point about Alexa is a good one because here you have a, a retailer that is saying, put our technology in your home. So that we can glean information about you. I guess where I see this going, and and we'll talk about it more when we come down to, I think, what was my sort of last prediction. But I see uh, the advent of technologies that act more on behalf of the consumer and, and giving the consumer the ability to actually regulate the information that is going to retailers on a very selective basis.
0: Right, right. And if you can get around the creepiness, clearly there's a lot of benefits to getting that kind of personalization and service that you know, customers clearly do want. Yeah. Um, so I want to move on. The third prediction you've got here is the beginning of the end of Amazon.
1: Mm-hmm. First of all, companies develop blind spots. Uh, it's natural. They, they are incredibly successful doing a certain thing. Amazon, you know, has been very, very successful with its current model. And Jeff Bezos actually came out and said recently, I don't know what the future holds. I can't predict the future. But what I do know is that customers want selection and they want value and that's not going to change. Well, anytime I hear a CEO say that something isn't going to change, it makes me worry. We all we also know that Amazon is a great tool when you know what you want, but it's not a good tool for shopping. So I think we're going to see the advent of more experiential shopping platforms that that could potentially catch uh, Amazon by surprise. There's just this whole issue around the incumbent mentality. You know, the more successful you are, the more you want to repeat what got you successful in the first place. And and then you know, lastly, Corinne, there's just this whole issue around the way they the way they are treating people. In their yes. organization, we hear the, the 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 horrid conditions that people are apparently working on uh, under in their uh, warehouses, and then there's also this backlash uh, by vendors. You know, we we've talked about the bait and switch um, that Amazon is orchestrating against its own brands and and vendor partners and. So when you add it all up, I think that they're going to have a rocky decade ahead. Mm-hmm.
0: And there, there's one other point that you had mentioned here and um, in, in what you had sent me earlier in that um, they're also going to face increased questioning from government regulators, antitrust concerns. Um, and I think, you know, Amazon is very much working on smoothing out that relationship. You know, they're bringing what they say is HQ2, but really is now two other satellite offices, one of which to Northern Virginia. So I also look at, you know, what what relationship will Amazon have with the government and in what ways will they need to re-steer their businesses um, in, in order to stay out of that limelight?
1: You know, we've seen, uh, you know, kind of the wrath that Google went through in Europe uh, recently with, I uh, think it was like $5.1 billion in fines um, in an antitrust case in Europe. So, This is real. Governments, especially with everything that Facebook has gone through, with the whole Cambridge Analytica uh, debacle, uh, the 2016 presidential election, and uh, the violation of consumer data in in that case, governments are are on high alert right now. and, And they're being put on high alert by citizens that are upset about these infractions. And so uh, amazon and and companies like them are going under the microscope at some point it's inevitable
0: well, let's hop into prediction number four um This is a company that you spoke a little bit on um, our last podcast episode, and it's magic leap's second act
1: just for for listeners that that are not aware of who who magic Leap is. Magic Leap is a startup that's based in Florida. They've been around for a few years. Uh, they have a massive, I think it's like a record amount of uh, venture cap funding amounting to about $2.3 billion. Google, Alibaba, and a host of others are, uh, are invested in them. Kind of the, the mystery around this company was that they had all this venture capital funding, but they weren't releasing a, a consumer product. And uh, just recently, they released their developer product to um, mixed reviews in the marketplace but they did some experimental work with uh, Wayfair, uh, allowing consumers using the Magic Leap device to, uh, which is, uh, I'll say it's kind of a cross between augmented reality and virtual reality, uh, to experiment with putting pieces of furniture in their home and seeing what they look like, moving them around, getting all kinds of information. So I thought it was pretty cool. But I think that this is just the beginning. I really Mm. and truly believe that Magic Leap uh, will, will very uh, aggressively pursue the creation of new consumer experiences online, and I think they could potentially reinvent the entire online shopping platform as we know it.
0: Mm-hmm. And when you see companies as big um, and as tech heavy as Alibaba and Google honing in on something and spending that much money, um, you have to wonder you know how significant that will be and where their eyes are at. So to return back to Amazon, prediction number five is Amazon Go Big or Go Home? Of course, referencing Amazon Go, their cashierless concept store.
1: So uh, we're going to see more of them. And that's, I don't think, going to come as a shock to anyone. Uh, Amazon has intimated that there could be as many as 3,000 of these things launched. So the question is where to, from You know, going forward, they're going to scale this up. And they've already made that clear. They want to apply this technology to a much, much larger store environment. My question is, will Amazon keep this technology to themselves as a competitive advantage in their physical spaces? Or... Will they actually look at this as the next Amazon Web Services?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. My other question about scaling up to Whole Foods, of course, is that before the launch of Amazon Go, you know, it was delayed. There were some technology problems. And I just wonder what is going to be the timeline of getting to a Whole Foods and what will it take to get there?
1: Well, if it's anything like everything else Amazon does, it'll probably happen faster than we imagined. You know, at one point they had more people working on Alexa than some people had in their entire company. If this is high on Jeff Bezos's list of things to get done in 2019, I think we're going to see, you know, we'll see a store the size of Whole Foods that is cashierless.
0: And, and next, moving on, I'm happy to see this one on here because it's not an issue we talk about enough in the retail industry, but your prediction is sustainability gets real. So tell us, why are people going to be talking about sustainability more and more?
1: So, I think we've reached a real inflection point. Um, It used to seem like when we talked about climate change, we were talking about fallout that was somehow like out on a hundred year horizon or something, you know. But now these predictions and um, models are becoming very, very dire and very close. Like, we're talking maybe a generation away. And and that's only like 25 years uh, before we really start seeing the the impacts of this in terms of climate refugees, in terms of massive economic and social fallout uh, f- from uh, increasing numbers of of catastrophic uh, weather events. And so, with all that in mind, I was recently in the UK at a fashion conference. I was uh, listening to Stella McCartney. Talking about an initiative that she has put together, which is essentially a charter uh, that she is encouraging other brands to join on that says we as a fashion industry are going to do things differently. We are going to use different materials we're going to adhere to better standards we are going to ensure that our more a more of our product actually gets to consumers and doesn't wind up in landfills. And if it does wind up in a landfill, that it's not going to uh, harm either the environment or, um, or people or, or uh, wildlife. Staggering statistics like just the, the you know, microfibers that you find in clothing that are plastic that are getting into the effluent water system and, and ending up not just in fish, uh, but in us that you know we, we now all carry around a, a level of plastic in our bodies. That's impacting our health and and even uh, our fertility rates. So when you you add all that up, I just believe that 2019 could indeed be an inflection point in the industry where actual change starts to happen, and, and I don't think it could happen fast enough.
0: Yeah. And, you know, as you're talking about fashion specifically, as it plays into the sustainability challenges, I mean, clearly we know fast fashion plays a big role in, um, you know, a lot of this waste of fabric and material. Are we going to see any change with that cycle? Um, you know, as we've seen customers grow more and more interested in this like very, very quick cycle of fashion, um, how will fast fashion retailers like Zara and H&M uh, respond?
1: yeah, I mean, fast fashion is is the elephant in the room. And that is going to be tough. I mean, it's one thing for a luxury player who's got the margin room, you know, the headroom in terms of their pricing, to sort of um price better behavior into the equation. But if you're a Zara or forever twenty one or you know someone of that ilk, uh, it's it's going to be, It's going to be a challenge to get those companies on side. But ultimately, my hope is that consumers just become so conditioned to, um, you know, understanding that this is the new paradigm, that uh, this is this is just the way we have to move forward, just like we don't have lead in paint anymore, that companies like Zara and, and uh, H&M and Forever 21 won't have these deadly microfibers in, in their clothing anymore. They'll use different materials. Hopefully, it just becomes the norm.
0: Yeah. So, so to what extent that's regulation mm-hmm. or hopefully consumer choice, um, hopefully we'll see those players react as well.
1: Yeah. And, and I think everyone at this conference agreed that there's got to be some level of regulation here. We, we, we can't just depend on people's altruism or, or consumer outrage that, that there will have to be some government intervention. Yeah.
0: Well, let's move on to prediction seven, and that's growth in retail as a service. Um, this is something that you've spoken about a lot, but you know, what do you envision happening in that space over the next year plus?
1: In the last episode, we talked about neighborhood goods and um, this notion of uh, a a department store, quote unquote, that really is, is providing retail as a service, that is hosting brands in a space that is curating that space in a very particular way, employing great design, creating great online content, providing staffing, merchandising, and providing great analytics. And that brands are responding by saying, look, we want we want access to audience, uh, we want uh, visibility in the marketplace, but we don't necessarily want to have to go and sign a 10-year lease. So it's, it's the best of both worlds. Brands can sign up for a month, they can sign up for six months, a year, whatever they like. Uh, very flexible model. I think that that is just... Um, uh, a reality with with the number of brands, the pure plays that we see now, uh, recognizing that there is a value in physical experiences, that there is a value in having a physical presence, but they don't have perhaps the capital to go ahead and open, you know, 10,000 square feet in Soho on a 10-year lease, they are going to respond to offers like this. So I think that Matt Alexander at Neighborhood Goods and uh, Vibu Norby at, at Beta, uh, you know, in Macy's with their marketplace at Macy's. These are these are going to be very very viable and lucrative services.
0: Yeah, and what's the effect for big boxers, right? I think we're talking a lot about digitally native brands opening up some stores, um, not holding a lot of inventory there. But you know, how will big boxers like Walmart and Target also look at this trend?
1: I think they already are. You know, I think Walmart's press. Uh, if if Walmart is is really investing in anything, it's investing in in converting its customers to online customers because I think it recognizes that it's just ultimately it's going to be a more efficient model for them the 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 inventory requirements of an online business alone are just so much less uh, than than that of a big box store that is kind of committed to this um minimal minimum shelf quantity of of items you you can see it in um the fact that they're they're trying to actually now convert consumers at the shelf they're they're giving every walmart employee an app that allows them to essentially order things online for consumers while they're standing in the aisle so clearly there's there's a, a you know kind of this recognition that this is the model that they want to move to Stores can be a great catalyst for purchases and certainly there's a great correlation. The ICSC has done studies on the idea that there's a correlation between physical presence in a marketplace and improved or enhanced online sales. So, you're not going to want to cut their nose off to spite their face and close a whole bunch of stores, but the size of those stores is certainly going to change.
0: And so let's let's get to the last one. Prediction number eight is the rise of the digital me. So what is the digital me? So I think, you know, the way
1: that we um, depend on something like Google Maps today, you know, if, if somebody had said to you uh, like let's say twenty five years ago, were we were we like doing MapQuest or something twenty five years ago? Was that MapQuest was the big innovation? But well, but today, you know, if you flash forward, uh, how many of us would just get in the car and and go off somewhere that we'd never been before without using GPS to navigate? Um, in the same sense that we are now dependent on technologies like GPS, I believe that we are going to see. The same level of dependence on digital personal assistance going forward, and and in particular, we saw a couple of things in 2018 that really I thought were indicative of this future. One was a, a mashup of a company called Soul Machines and Watson, IBM Watson, uh, and it was a demonstration that was given at a conference, live demonstration. And this piece of technology, this this AI assistant uh, was actually capable of taking a consumer from basically uh, no awareness about credit card offerings down to a very, very specific and personalized recommendation in just a few minutes by asking a series of very, uh, obviously very intelligent questions and, and guiding that consumer down to that decision. Uh, it was an incredibly impressive demonstration. Most audiences that I've shown it to agree that it's also a little creepy and uncanny, <laughs> but but nonetheless, you, yeah. <laughs> you you can't dispute the efficiency of it and um, the potential for that technology to take hold. The other one was Google at their I/O conference. Uh, they demonstrated the uh, an AI technology that was capable of actually making a phone call on behalf of the user and booking an appointment. In the case of their example, it was a haircut, a hair appointment. The the person who answered the phone at the hair salon talked to this AI for what had to be, you know, a good solid two minutes. And there was never a recognition on their part that this was a, a string of code. That they were talking to, it was it was um, pretty mm-hmm. staggering to watch uh, the degree to which this AI was natural in its conversation, in its abilities, um, very very human like. So when I sort of looked at the both of those things, I thought, okay, well I think the future is pretty clear. Each of us is going to subscribe to an AI assistant that we can create in whatever form we want in terms of the way it looks and the way it sounds and it will become smarter and smarter about us and the things that we we enjoy and we like. It will bring all of the aspects of our world together, our calendar, our location, our contacts, and it will literally become indispensable to us in any situation where we have to make uh, any kind of consumer decision of consequence. We will be as dependent on it as we are on GPS to get our bodies from one place to another today. And if that sounds dis- like a dystopia, um, you know, I think a lot of people 50 years ago would have looked at where we are today and and thought that was dystopia. Um, But, you know.
0: Right, right. And, And I can see that, you know, like looking at that, I wonder, you know, do we, I think some of the questions that come about are if you, if you call the hairstylist and they sound human, like, do we have are right in the need and a want to know that they are a robot, that they are not an actual person. Um, so I imagine there's going to be a period of um, consumer adjustment, trust building on all that. But, you know, the comparison that you're making to GPS is a very good one because I mean, 25 years ago, that's when I was born. Right. So I grew up being extremely dependent on GPS because, you know, growing up, that's how, um, you know, older as an adult, that's how I get around. Um, and I don't have a need to have an Atlas in my car. Um, and so I think for especially younger generations, um, it's something that could be, um, you know, very, very comfortable in the next, um, decade.
1: Absolutely. You know, and just, uh, on that note, my uh, my father passed away a few years ago. He was 89 when he passed away, and uh, really up until he he died, he he was creeped out by GPS. We'd really? Be, yeah, we'd be driving together in the car, and he'd hear, you know, Google Maps say, "Take a right turn at the next you know next street or whatever," and he was constantly it 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 just freaked him out. It it made him sort of anxious because it just was not something that he was used to, you know. So I I totally agree with you. I think that a lot of these things that seem, you know, just too uncanny now or it's weird or it's, you know, it seems intrusive, We'll get used to it as long as there's utility.
0: Yeah, and you know, imagine for different consumers, there's gonna be different wants and needs. And not everyone wants everything personalized. And no. not everyone today owns an Alexa or a will in their lifetime. But for those in urban city centers, for young folks especially, and, and those very digitally savvy, I, I'm eager to see, you know, what that adjustment period is gonna look like.
1: That's right. If it makes my life easier. And, and it really provides some sort of quantifiable utility, uh, chances are mo- most people are gonna be interested in that
0: thing. Thank you so much, Doug.
1: It's my pleasure, Corinne. Thanks for having me.
0: Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Conversational Commerce. For all the latest news and trends, don't forget to subscribe to our free daily newsletter at retaildive.com. And stay tuned for more episodes Next up, I'll be taking the podcast on the road up to New York City for NRF's annual Big Show, where I'll be recording a few live shows. If you'll be there too, let us know and come by the podcasting booth on Sunday, January 13th, between 1.30 and 2.30, and then again on Tuesday at the same time. You can also tweet me at the handle at RetailDive and at Commerce. Hope to see you there. I'm Corinne Ruff, and this was Conversational Commerce.